Welcome to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. We've interviewed the chapter authors of the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook with the intention of bringing each chapter to life. Our goal is to make learning management not suck. Now let's learn a little bit about the interviewee for this chapter. Hello, and welcome to the Deconstructing Management Podcast. Joining us today, we have Joe Weiss. Joe is a professor at Bentley University. He is also a contributor and author of the OpenStax Principle of Management, which is free, by the way. Today's topic is ethics and business. From the entire team, we hope that this podcast episode gives you insight on the world of business ethics. Woo! So our first question is, can you start off by explaining why ethics, corporate responsibility, and sustainability are important in business today? You know, when I first started researching and also writing in ethics, it was kind of boring, to be honest. Those were the days when people were saying, is business ethics an oxymoron? I had to look up what oxymoron meant, by the way. That is two things that don't fit together. And I would have to apologize saying, I think ethics is important and I think it's important for everybody. Fast forward to 2020 and even five years ago, ethics is one of the most popular topics on campus and in the news and globally. So what do I think it's important? I think without ethics these days, maybe you might agree with me that we would be a little bit lost and many people and many groups seem to be lost in our society. Absolutely. Yes. I love that you said that because after reading the chapter on our own, like individually, we came back as a group to discuss the chapter. And at first it felt like we were like, okay, what can we pull out of this? And then related it to things that we felt were relevant today in our lives. And so it was really nice to be able to do that with, you know, the contents of the chapter. Great. So most people would probably say they have a good idea of what ethics are, but in the chapter, you beautifully juxtapose ethics and values. Can you explain the two for our listeners? Absolutely. Well, values are at the core of ethics because as I said in the chapter, ethics is really who we are the core of our identity. It's not only who we are, but it's how we act, how we live, how we relate to others. It's our choices. So values really are the guides by which we act, live, and define ourselves. So that's an important piece because, as I said in the chapter two, is that we start with the individual. We don't start with the external environment. We start with who we are, and it stays that way. Whether we're talking about global ethics or corporate responsibility and ethics, it's still the individuals who are actually defining, interacting, and showing and using their values, whether those values are consciously used or unconsciously used. So part of what we can talk about as we go along is part of being ethical is responsibly, consciously, deliberately choosing to act in certain ways that we believe are the right ways. And there's no excuses when people make crazy blundering errors that hurt others, no excuses. When somebody gets hurt, that's usually when ethics gets noticed, somebody has to get hurt. It's almost like in a legal situation in a a court of law or something, somebody has got injured or hurt. Now that's too bad. I'd like to talk as we go along about 
can we talk about ethics without something negative happening happened or something catastrophic? Let's talk about also what are positive ethics and, and how does that play out? Well, I love that. That's awesome. I love that idea. And I think it applies to some of the things that we have. We did come up with some fun questions at the end that now getting to meet you, I was, at first I was like, I don't know if you're going to like that, but now getting to meet you, I think you might actually enjoy some of the questions we've pulled up and Absolutely. we can discuss I'm look, that I'm more. looking forward to those. <laughs> So when our team discussed the chapter, we found that we had this idea of ethics that was more normative, the right from wrong approach to defining ethics as opposed to applied business ethics. Can you explain business ethics as being applied for our listeners? Right, right. Well, when we do talk about the normative part of ethics, and that really is, I will say myself, at the heart of ethics because it has the ought, how ought we to act and how should we. And that's important because there's a lot of descriptive types of ethics and there's a lot of descriptive types of everything. Describing is not the same thing as choosing deliberately to act and how should we act. And that's where the principles come in. So the application, so to speak, especially when it, it's also at the individual level, but the corporate level too, is how does a company or an individual choose to act and hopefully they look at what it, it is in terms of why they're acting and whom they're acting with and for what purposes before they apply policies before we act toward another human being and that's probably what being ethical means it means taking a pause and before we unconsciously or knee-jerk ways acting we just kind of take a pause and say, what am I doing and what's my purpose? And am I going to hurt somebody or help somebody? And that's in a nutshell, really about what applying means. It means when I actually take an intentional action uh, or even unintentional sometimes is that I'm applying an action an intention to somebody else, whether it's a foreign country, like right now we see Korea really on the teeter-tottering edge of disaster. And believe me, if our leaders don't think about and ponder about the consequences, don't worry, they are. In the war rooms around the world, they have all of these scenarios. But as sophisticated as those scenarios are, we hope that when they do act, and hopefully it's not an act of war, that they are acting with ethical principles. Absolutely. That's extremely important. Can you help us understand terminal and instrumental values and how identifying and separating terminal from instrumental values can assist individuals, groups, and work units in distinguishing between the ends or goals from the means or the methods to reach those goals? Right. Well, terminal values simply are what the term suggests. It's like, what are our end goals? What are our what are we reaching for? What values are the foundational values? And the instrumental values are the ones that we are actually putting into practice. For example, if I say that one of my terminal values is to act with integrity and to have my words and my actions demonstrate integrity of purpose and of who I am, but then when I start acting in certain ways, those values hopefully are aligned with integrity and the values of actually showing what I'm doing and, and how I'm doing something 
hopefully they're aligned with that end goal with that end value. People sometimes you can have a value, but it doesn't have some kind of foundational end to it. Like what does it mean to have integrity? And sometimes that's a showstopper. People can act certain ways and they're demonstrating certain values, but toward what end? Because when we talk about that, then we can talk about do the means justify the ends and do the ends justify the means? Thank you so much for explaining that. That was something that a lot of us on the team had questions about. Like we read that portion of the chapter and, and they were just like, can we just ask him to explain this or give us more details on that? So that's really helpful. Thank right, you. Thank you. What are ways organizations can employ values to induce people to make ethical choices? That's a great question. What I observe that organizations, not all of them, but I consult as well, they have value statements. They have their vision, their values and their mission statements, and they publish those, and their stakeholders, their customers, everybody says, oh, those are great, those are great. But then when it comes to applying those <laughs> instrumentally, so to speak, those are good end values, but when they start applying those, it seems like there's some disconnects. So one way to keep the connection between what they say, corporations, what they print and what they publish and what they do when they're acting out the values, is to be aligned among themselves and to build their HR systems, their reward systems, their performance systems around those values. So not just to say this is the sugar coating on the top of the cake, but we're actually going to reward people. And some extent, I don't want to use the word punish, but withhold certain rewards when People and including us at the top, they could start with themselves. That's where they should start. So not just printing them, but embedding them in the HR systems and also with the supervisors, the people all the way down the supply chain, making sure that those values are in practice. That's a simple way of putting it. Seems to work, right? If we do the same thing with children, there's a reward, there's a consequence, right? Chastity, it's funny that you just said that because I was going to say it, but I didn't want to sound too trivial. But I was thinking in a family, the father, the mother, the other, no matter what the gender orientation is of the parent, they always want to do right with the kids, right? We want to be their role models and so forth. Then start rolling the film. I told you not to do that. So yeah, that's what I mean. We can talk about corporate ethics, global ethics, but we still are talking about the individual, the family, students, professors. Yeah, you're right. Even when you were talking before, it's just like, it makes sense. It's like, if I'm going anywhere with my own children, I prepare them before we go somewhere. Like the first time I took them to a movie, here is the expectation. And if you can't meet that expectation of behavior, like then we're going to have to step out, that sort of thing. As you were talking, I was like, oh, wow, that's really relatable just in general, right, to our lives. What are some major ethical principles that uh, guide individuals and organizations? Yeah, and I'm not trying to be an advertisement here, but in the book that I'm in the seventh edition of the book, of which this chapter is based, by the way, it's called Business Ethics, a stakeholder issues management approach. And the reason I wrote that book was also to teach me what I didn't know and to reinforce what I thought I knew. And the, the second chapter of that book has got all these principles that I kind of abbreviated here, by the way. And 
you know, in these principles, which people choose them, but they're also some that you can observe. And this is part of why being a student of ethics, as well as being a, a practitioner, is that once you know the full range of these principles, which are classical, but still very relevant, then you could see in people's behaviors how those are reflected. For example, to answer your question, when you have a universalism or a, it's a duty-based principle, and in that principle, it's really the concern for every human being. It's the heart of what emotional intelligence is about. That and virtue ethics, what's called virtue ethics. Virtue ethics and universalism are where uh, empathy and forgiveness, love, concern, that's the bedrock. So when you say, the means justifies the ends. You're talking about universalism because it's not just reaching the profit goal. If you stole and cheated people and mistreated people through the means of getting to that goal, that's not good. So I always like to start with that because that's really, if you ask me today, the beginning of time and so forth, what separates human beings from other species. Not that other species are all altruistic, they certainly are, it's not just for us, but what makes us human is really the universalism in us, the virtues that we aspire to, and that's important. Then you've got rights, you know, everybody has rights, inalienable rights to freedom and happiness and so forth. And then you've got justice. Oh, justice, yeah. Justice has got teeth to it. Oh. But I thought I was a good person. You may be a good person. I thought I was being so caring and empathetic and loving. Well, you may have been, but you just hurt somebody. You damaged somebody's property, somebody's goods. So all of a sudden, justice appears. Wow. Okay. We're talking about procedures, procedural justice, how things are done, compensation. We have to pay for what we did that was wrong. Retribution. That's the tough one. That's the penalties. So justice is support. All of these principles work together. That's another way of, of looking at it. Under what conditions can what principles be applied? And I've always said to my classes is that if you see a judge as well as a lawyer sitting in a courtroom, they know these principles. And whether or not that they, they're ethicists or not or philosophers, they're always looking at these different principles all together. So when they make a judgment, and it could be a life sentence for someone. They look at that person. They look at that person's situation. They look at to what extent is it the good for the many. I have to look at that. But then they say, I'm not going to just apply some kind of abstract principle, what's good for everybody. It's like Johnny in the third grade wants to go to the bathroom. And the teacher says, if I let you go to the bathroom, I have to let everybody go to the bathroom. Well, damn it, let everybody go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, so some people are very rigid, you know, in that. And then you've got the common good. And that's also related to universalism. Now, in this paper and in my book, I talk about ethical relativism. And some people reviewing my book said, I don't think you should put ethical relativism as a principle. I said, I'm going to. Why? Because everything relates to me. When I say an ethical relativist, I'm thinking, What's my moral basis for making a decision? Me, myself, and I, self-interest. So that's just a long way of saying it helps to look at all of those principles and why so that you can see how those are being played out by your friends, yourself, 
And it's not just to say, okay, I know a principle and say, you know, why are you acting so self-interested? Aren't you concerned about everybody here? No, that's perfect. Actually, our next question was going to be me asking you to differentiate between some of those. And so it's really helpful. And it was like a, a nice little package right there for us. So right. thank you. Right. So the next portion of questions is um, talking about ethical leadership being important to organizations. So in the chapter, you state top corporate managers are under scrutiny from the public as never before. And even small companies are finding a need to put more emphasis on ethics to restore trust among their customers and the community. So what role does leadership play in how ethically organizations and its members act and perform? The leaders of any organization or family or team, whether it's a student team in a classroom or whether it's IBM or Facebook, ooh, Facebook's under a lot of uh, constraints. It's the same. The leader, this is the famous phrase, sets the tone at the top. The tone of the organization is set at the top, just as in families, okay, or teams. The leader has the responsibility to model the way. He, she, they have the obligation and the responsibility to show how to act. And hopefully it's ethically, or many times it's not, but they are also the practitioners and the embodiment. I like that word. They embody. That breaks it a little bit more physical, not theoretical. They embody the vision, the mission, and the values. Now, that's why a lot of them get fired or a lot of them, the shareholders get outraged. The boards of directors in universities, like I'm at a nonprofit, we don't call them boards of directors, we call them trustees. But it's also their role to keep the leader in the line. But it's a big responsibility, but that's why they're making a lot of money. Absolutely. <laughs> So that's great because our question is, can you explain what stewardship is and the role of servant leadership? Absolutely. More recently, I've been using a film or parts of a film called Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you or anybody's familiar with that. Love that, that movie. You so know, good. You talk about servant leadership. So for those of you out there, I'm not promoting the movie. I don't have any best interest in it. But it's based on what really happened. So my own feeling is that servant leadership is all the way at the extreme of how a leader could really be for the followers and demonstrate it. Almost kind of a Jesus type of figure. Or, you know, you can use other religious. By the way, a lot of this is based on religion or religious examples. But you had Gandhi and you have all the great leaders who actually service was their terminal value. It was for the good of everybody else, society and everybody. And when you look at professions today, like police departments, I know they're under fire and so forth, but military and other, you know, caregiving places where people can lose their lives. They can really lose their lives. You know, think of 9-11 firefighters who went into those buildings when they were burning down. They knew after a while that they're not going to come back out but yet they went. So servant leadership is doing the right thing for the people involved. Stewardship is like servant leaders, but they don't go quite as far as a servant leader would go. They kind of help out. That's fine, you know, but there comes a time when they say, well, that, that's as far as I'm going to go. 
but that's still good. I'm not saying it's bad. I like those two and I put them in and I talk to them in my own classrooms. Servant leaders usually are empathetic. They're all the virtue ethics that we talked about earlier. Go see Hacksaw Ridge and you'll see a servant leader in action. Now the question is, who's the servant leaders out there today? That's a little tougher question. I'll let that float for a little bit. <laughs> that's a great question. I think now there's a much more kind of like egocentric view to a lot of things that people do. So it's, it? it's a little bit, it's a little bit tough out there these days, but I loved the the concept of servant leadership and I thought it was just really unique. And like you said, it is based a lot, probably just more of religion and how a lot of people kind of grow up understanding how I love that you point back to the family, how a family runs. There's a servant leadership there. And then stewardship as opposed to servant leadership, it's like, a babysitter as opposed to a parent, right? Like you have someone that's going to care for you for a bit and then you've got, you know, so you've got I, I your will mom. Use, I yeah. will use that one. I like that metaphor. I'll use that. What would you say to people who say like right now there's just this big push to change? I think there's this odd place of people wanting more ethical values in the workplace, but then there's this other push where it's like, we don't need rules. We don't need boundaries. We don't want these things. What would you say is like the balance between the two? And do you see that becoming a larger issue? Well, again, really good question. And my own feeling and studies and research shows that longer term compliance, if you will, longer term ways of getting people to do things that is good for the company, is good for everybody, is through intrinsic motivation. Studies do show that people respond in general, more to intrinsically motivated ways of guiding. But as I said before, when you get to that point where some people can't, won't, or whatever, then some compliance. Now take the classroom, for example. I think most professors, I'll just be liberal about that. They don't want to punish students and they don't want to give Fs or assign Fs or Ds or Cs. But yet we have to do that. Why? Because we want learning to be based on legitimate, knowledgeable subjects and so forth. And if you're teaching healthcare workers or people who are going to be surgeons and nurses, you want them to know what a, a fraction is because they're going to be giving blood to your mother and father and they're going to be giving other kinds of technical pieces. If you pass all of those people, if they decide they're not going to look at the metrics of what they're supposed to be doing, wouldn't be a good thing. That's totally kind of not. a practical way of saying it. Just like you love your daughter, you love your son, you love your child, but yet for some reason, something in them is a little bit snarky and sometimes they want to do something, see if they can get away with it. Then you have to kind of bring them back. Great. Absolutely. Would you say technology, digital communication have made it easier to identify and publicize ethical missteps? And what are some of the positive and negative outcomes of the ever-growing popularity of these platforms in the field of business ethics? That's one of the key questions going forward. And I think we're going to be facing that for the next 20 years. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, you name it. Well, they're great. Why are they great? Because they've democratized information. They certainly have democratized it, but at the same time, they've enabled politicians and others of great power to use misinformation and disinformation to hurt everybody, including, oh, hello, our democracy. Right now, if we talk about stakeholders and stakes, 
Nobody's ever seen anything like this since the Civil War. And none of us were around during the Civil War. But our democracy is at stake because these platforms are not policing and holding back the, the information that's causing. I mean, my goodness, when you look at the surveys, and I don't want to go into that about people who really do believe in these lies. You know what I'm talking about. And, and we should be saying it was June the 6th insurrection. I was going to say, you mentioned Facebook earlier. I'm like, go ahead, like, <laughs> say your piece. It's perfectly I, I, fine. <laughs> I, I can't hold it back. I can't hold it back. We're at a turning point. Talk about what's the biggest stake and the biggest stakeholder of the issues right now going forward ethically. It's whether or not the 2022 and 2024 elections are able to be voted with everyone who has a right, coming back to the principles, who has a right, a duty, responsibility, to do what's good for the common good. We know that, but we should talk about that more often with ethics because that's where we're at with that. So would you say, or maybe I should phrase this, like how much weight does society have on a company's ethics and how business is conducted within that company? Because I know like in society, there's just this greater role that a lot of businesses have, especially with platforms like Facebook, right? Like that's a huge platform. Cool. So how much weight would you say that these companies have within society right now and how cool. the, a business actually conducts itself? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, traditionally, and I think still now, companies are scared to death, especially the ones who are offering services to the consumers, not the business-to-business -business companies and some of those, but boycott. When the boycotting of products and services reaches the point where they have to give way, that's when they start changing. That's where the tire meets the concrete. But the other thing is reputation. If you ask any CEO or any officer of whether it's IBM or Facebook, you say, what's your most valuable asset? They're not going to say profitability. They're not going to say the ability to perform well. They're going to say our reputation. So once their reputation gets tarnished, and that takes time, it doesn't happen overnight. And what's that reputation based on? Trust, reliability, how good the product serves the person and so forth. That's why I like business ethics. It's tangible. You know, it's not just philosophical. Facebook's in trouble. Let's, let's face it. It's really in trouble. And if they don't want to be taken apart, because that could be the next thing that would happen, they're going to have to police, if you will, and this is where compliance comes in, they're going to have to police the bad guys in the information that's going on. So boycotting, I, I have to tell you, individuals taking responsibility for putting the spotlight on. People say, you know, what is ethics? Ethics is what you do when the, the lights are off. But for these companies, we have to turn the lights on. And I'm glad to see that those VMUs, whether it's Amazon or Facebook, I'm glad to see them having some pressure. We all love it. I mean, what would happen with kids if you took TikTok away? They'd probably die suffocate. But on the other hand, teenage girls with Instagram and some of those things, not good. We need more policing, but we're going to have to, as individual consumers in this case, make it our responsibility to publish things in our local papers, go on social media and talk about where the companies are going wrong. We're going to have to use that power. So you're talking about boycotting as being like a powerful tool to change for some of these companies. Have you heard of the term cancel culture? Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you think that it's a positive thing or that it could have negative effects on businesses in general? How do you feel about that? Well, that's a great question. And I think there's a role when you give a name, a term to something, 
it gets complicated. So when you say cancel culture, you know the whole right of the political spectrum is going to come down and say, speaking of rights, you're violating our right. They say, no, you're violating my right. I don't want the statues of those Confederate soldiers and generals to be in the middle of my town square. And they're saying, well, if you take those out, you're canceling that culture. So it's a battle of rights. But I wish sometimes we would take away some of those words because I think that they're like landmines. You know, once you get into it, it kind of blows it up. Why can't we just say, put it in simple English, look, this statue of Andrew Jackson, in the middle of our town square, violates our sense of who we are. And now again, they can say the other thing too, but at least they don't have a term to blast it. So I, I wish we could take some of those away because now the extreme right is using cancel culture as a way that showing that the leftists are usurping their rights. I, I, I get what it's all about. And I think you know what I mean, but I think that we have to somewhere come together. I don't know how that's going to come about, but it's going to have to be not stereotyping and not overgeneralizing. We're going to have to speak truth to power, but our own truth everybody else's power. I agree. I think it's a very broad term and I think it's kind of getting away from people. <laughs> right. Earlier you mentioned, you kind of answered this question a bit, but I did want to just give you the opportunity sure. to provide some more details. So what are some ethical issues we encounter in the global environment? Yeah, we talked about climate change. I think climate change is at the top because if we thought COVID was bad, if we thought Delta was bad, if we thought putting a mask on until we got outside and could breathe, what about when you go outside and you can't breathe? That's still at the top of the list. The other thing is this disinformation, this move to autocracies, this move to having democracies taken apart by oligarchs. I think that that's, that's our biggest challenge globally. I mean, to be just honest. Now, we can talk about corporate social responsibility. We can talk about corporations. But I think rising a bit, a level above all of that is the emergence and reemergence in our own country of autocracies, kleptocracies, and people taking away or, or accumulating power at the top at everybody's expense. I mean, really right now, I'm scared to death of that happening in this country. And I think it's going to involve us having to, I was in the 60s, you know, when Vietnam was happening. And Vietnam was a whole generation of people your age, when I was your age, taking to the streets. We had to go to the streets. We had to shut universities down. Now, that was scary in those days because we could go to prison. And some people did go to prison. But we haven't had that happen. I think maybe, and I don't want to sound like a prognosticator here or a prophet, but when you have to put your life on the line, people listen. So when you had a whole generation in the 60s saying, hell no, we won't go to Vietnam. And when you had Muhammad Ali saying, I ain't going to no foreign country and kill brown people, but I can come back here and as a black person don't have any rights. Uh, they didn't send them to prison. So I hope your generation doesn't have to go putting your body on the line. But that's the extreme. Sometimes when ethics reaches a point where you just can't stand it. Now, we came close to that with Black Lives Matter. I think the Me Too movement. Now, those movements have huge power. 
and they've made a difference inside the corporation. DEI is not going away. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're reaching that point now with this voting thing. We're reaching it with uh, climate change. I just hope your generation and the one after that doesn't have to lay their body down to let corporate leaders and leaders in nations say, oh, I guess this was an important issue. No, I think it's important. It's really important. And I think, you know, in terms of not even just our generation, but the generations to come, we have a whole group of people coming after us that we're setting the stage for. And so it's really important to kind of discuss these issues. But it is truth that as things have progressed over the past, you know, I mean, years, but these past few years, it seems it's progressing more rapidly. It's scary. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely frightening because you're not sure what's going to happen. And sometimes you're not even sure what's right, what's, you know, anymore. So right, that's right. It's, it's important. So honestly, this is probably a little bit not lighter than sure. what you just mentioned, but sure. it's, the question is similar. So I was thinking about just the extremely public college admission scandals in, involving Lori Laughlin and Facility Hoffman. Within that, 50 people were charged with participating in the college admission scandal involving bribery, money laundering, and documents of fabrication. Laughlin's daughter, her name is Sophia, yep. she's famously quoted as believing that this whole idea was really normal because this is something that she saw happen in her group of peers. So her family members, her peers, they were all admitted to colleges in a similar fashion where they falsified documents and, and all of these things to get in or paid their way into college. As students who are currently, you know, we currently go to Three Rivers, which yep. is a community college. Yep, yep. It seems a little unfair to us. And it seems like you should have known that this was not OK, you know. But as a generation entering the business world, how do you think that we can affect change, whether it's in college admissions or corporations or our own businesses to address the areas that seem normal but need to be changed ethically and even legally? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love community colleges. My wife is a tenured professor at a community college here in Massachusetts. And I believe in many ways that education at that level should be free. I'll just go online saying that. I think that the government, our government owes it to your generation. People who go to community colleges are not rich. They're not wealthy. They're not entitled. And it's just not fair that any student should have a $30,000 average debt. That's average. Some of them have 100000 Some of them have 15000 The average is all those taken together, which is still too much. So I believe that, to your question, that the universities need to be transformed. People are making too much money. And the focus of education is turned into what kind of sports facilities do we have? What kind of this do we have? What kind of that do we have? And what kind of ranking do we have? We're getting away from what education is all about. And I think that the leveling of the playing field, as they say, is going to be coming because it can't be sustained. It just can't be sustained. You can't have tuition keep going up at even at community colleges at a rate of three to 6% or 8% a year. And I think COVID-19 shocked everybody by saying, guess what? We don't need to all of us be in the classroom. We can be both places. Now, I know that face-to-face -face is good. And I'm teaching face-to-face -face right now. I'm teaching three courses face-to-face. -face. But at the same time, 
back to your point is that what's going to happen? Well, right now there is a debate going on, and that's usually what happens. Ethical debates going on right now, to your point. And this legacy thing of people, it's not just people who can afford to pay more to bribe. It's just bribery is what it is. You can't bribe your way into getting your kid into college. If you do that, then you should be compliance-wise serving a prison term. And so that's where I'm coming from. You can't do that. That's not what education is about. So we're going to have to bring a little bit more compliance and we're going to have to change back to the nature of the university to what it should be. That is serving students. Speaking of servant leadership, stewardship, we should be servants and stewards to students, just like our government should be representing us, not their pocketbooks. That's where we're at. If not, it's going to be a revolution. Hopefully it's an evolution. But yeah, it's got to change. Now, one university, I forgot which one it was, is taking away the legacy system. That people whose children went to this university get a break. I like to see that happen at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, MIT, and so on, Stanford. We'll see if that happens because there's a lot of money involved. Absolutely. Thank you so much for answering that question. Okay, so one last question because I know you do have to go and I, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you. So one of our goals with this podcast is to get an idea of how this topic applies to college students and classrooms. Could you tell us how you see the contents of this specific chapter relating to the lives of college students inside and outside of the classroom? Okay, I think the answer to that, I don't think I, I would promote the fact that the answer to that would be exactly what you've done. In this interview, you have asked pertinent, lively, contemporary questions that affect all of us. And then we take what we've learned in terms of not only this chapter, but, you know, all of our education system. And we say, how can we as informed ethicists in this particular case, apply the principles that seem abstract at first, but then when you bring it down to education, to climate, to business practices, even to how we are getting along with each other in the classroom, that's when education makes sense. And I think that ethics should be at the heart of all of education. Because when we ask questions of, is it right? Is it fair? Who does it hurt? Who gets helped? And why? We're never going to get away from those questions. The terminal and the instrumental values go together. The universalism and the utilitarianism, it all fits together. But in the end, the question really is, who are we helping and who are we hurting and why? I love that response, especially the who are we hurting? Because I feel like a lot of times we focus a lot on who are we helping and not the who are we hurting part. So thank you so much for emphasizing that tonight and just for getting on with us. I really appreciate your time and it was such a pleasure to meet you. It was an honor to be with you and thank you for those really piercing questions, which were good. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Ethics and Business with Shastity and Jill Weiss. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and hope that you take something from it. That's all, folks. Wait, are we allowed to say that legally? You've been listening to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. Be sure to check the show notes for resources related to this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.